got cancelled for you this year because of COVID. Uh, for our family, uh, it was an overseas trip to Japan and Taiwan that got cancelled. Um, and then I was supposed to go to Melbourne with Bethany to watch uh, Harry Potter, got cancelled as well. And there was a few speaking engagements and conferences that got cancelled or delayed. Now, we were disappointed, especially in the overseas trip being cancelled. But you know what? In the big scheme of things, what was cancelled for us uh, hasn't been that big of a deal. But I know for some of you, um, the cancellations have been far more disruptive and far more stressful, right? I mean, those of you who've had weddings and wedding plans changed on your cancelled 21st birthday parties or even some of you've jobs, income that's been disrupted, cancelled. And we know for friends in Melbourne and Victoria, the last few months has been especially on a totally different level in terms of cancellation. Uh, one writer from Melbourne puts it like this. Let me read it for you. She writes... The pandemic has all but stripped us of so many things we value here, the things we define ourselves by as a city, the restaurants we planned our evenings around, the street art we passed on our daily commutes, and the sporting events that generated an infectious excitement. They've all been left on pause for the better part of a year. It feels as if we're all passengers on a boat that's moored just slightly offshore, bobbing listlessly in stagnant water, forced to watch on as the rest of the country basks in the simple freedoms we can't yet afford. Well, today we ask the question again, how does God in the Bible offer good news in a COVID world? Right, this world has seen countless cancellations and plans, big and small, derailed and changed. The part of the Bible we just read, the part we'll be looking at today, is all about how God refused to cancel His plan to save us. And because of his uncancelled plan, that gives us hope and certainty when our plans go up in smoke, whether from COVID or not. It's good news. It's coming. Will you pray with me before we go into it? Father God, we pray that as we look on this part of the Bible, as we see that critical moment where you and your son Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, refuse to cancel your costly plan to save us that this would be our certainty and hope and our comfort when our plans get disrupted and cancelled. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, if you watched uh, or with us last week, we saw Mark's biography and we saw an episode from the beginning of his biography. Well, now we're going to skip towards the end because here we are as the last night of Jesus' life before his betrayal and crucifixion. And we read that there he is and he's at a place called Gethsemane. Now, other biographies of Jesus tell us that Gethsemane is a garden 
In fact, it's a small garden that you can still visit in modern day Jerusalem. He's there on the last night and he's there with his disciples, his closest followers and friends. And quite uncharacteristically, Jesus is not like he's been throughout the rest of the the gospel. He's not secure. He's not at peace. He is not calm. In fact, in verse 33, he is deeply distressed and, and deeply troubled. Or in his words, the next verse, he says that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, in Luke's biography of Jesus, uh, he writes that as Jesus goes off and prays in a moment, he's going to be sweating drops of blood, right? Now, all of this is trying to say something that really can't quite be put into words, all right? That, that, there are times when the level of distress and mental anguish and anxiety and sorrow is so great and so overwhelming that words cannot quite describe it. That's what Jesus is going through. I picture it. A little bit like a time about 25 years ago, I was at a beach, I was caught in a riptide, I was dragged out and I was drowning. And there I was trying to tread water, trying to hold my head above water, take, trying to take each breath. But after each breath, a wave would come and then I would push myself up to take another breath and another wave would come. And I was there exhausted, trying to stay afloat, but sinking and drowning as each wave came again and again and again. Thank God that the lifeguard eventually found me and saved me. I wonder, have you experienced sorrow and grief and pain and anguish like that? Like the waves that just come again and again, mercilessly, right? One after the other, overwhelming you. Some of you have. Now, I know that some of you have felt like like that. God knows that you have. And even if you haven't, well, you know, it's just a matter of time before all of us faces something like that. I mean... There'll be a point in all of our lives when we will lose someone we really, really love, just as an example. It may be a good friend, it may be your spouse, it may be a parent, or God forbid, it may even be your child. When grief hits you like that, sorrow hits you like that, it's not something you can quite put into words, is it? Well, Jesus is there, and he is in that state of overwhelming anguish. And he asks his disciples, we read, he asks them to stay and keep watch while he goes off to pray because he knows what's coming. He knows he's foreseen it, that danger is coming. But right now he just needs them to keep watch so that he will have the time and the space to have some time with God in prayer before events take a worse turn. Stay here, keep watch, is what he tells them. And we read then, he goes a little further, verse 35. And he falls to the ground. Now, maybe he is on his knees because he's falling to the ground, praying on his knees. But maybe he is so distressed and so spent emotionally that he is just flat on the ground, all fours, flat on the ground in desperation. And it's there that he prays. And what he prays, we read, is that the hour might pass from him. His words are, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is just an intimate term that means something like daddy, right? Abba, Daddy, Father, he says, everything is possible for for you. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Now, that's a curious little phrase, isn't it? What, What does Jesus mean by that? Why is he praying that the cup be taken away of all things he could pray in his desperation, in his anguish? Well, we'll actually come back to that in a moment. But for now, I want us to notice that reference to the hour in verse 35. Remember, Jesus prays that the hour might pass from him. What is the hour? Well, if you look carefully at this account of Mark's, you'll see that the word hour is actually mentioned three times 
in our section. It becomes like a bit of a theme or a motif in his account. See, it's there again in verse 37 when Jesus finds his disciples sleeping and he says to Simon Peter, couldn't you keep watch for just one hour? And then it's there in verse 41 for a third time when all has been said and done and Jesus returns to find them asleep a third time. He says, enough, the hour has come, right? Three times we see Mark mention the hour. What does it mean? What's its significance? Well, in verse 41, when he says the hour has come, he also says that that is when he, the son of man, will be delivered and betrayed and handed over to his enemies. The same people who will, with the help of his own disciple, Judas Iscariot, they were about to arrest him. They would put false charges on him. They would condemn him to his death. Okay, that is what the hour is referring to. That's the hour that's coming. But then really significantly, the next time Mark uses the word the hour is going to be in chapter 15, verse 25. And it's when Jesus is dying on the cross. Mark writes there that it was the third hour when they crucified him, right? The third hour or 9 a.m. when they crucified him. But you see, for Mark, that wasn't just a marker of what time of the day it was. It's because of that theme, the hour. It's the way that Mark will refer to the time when Jesus will die, when it all comes to head and he is finally betrayed and crucified. That is the hour. Now, the reason why he uses the phrase the hour to talk about that is because the hour makes it like it was an appointment, right? The hour shows that this is part of a plan. It was set in in motion. It was uh, appointed. It was going to happen at a certain time in advance. If you like, it's like a mark in Jesus's calendar, the hour, the the hour was going to be the time when he would die. And that is marked and synced in his calendar. But then each reference to the hour prior to that, like three times we saw in our bid, is like a notification to alert us that this appointed time was coming. See what? And that is what Jesus was so torn up and so in anguish about. He was, it was his hour. The appointed time of his death, the fulfillment of God's plan appointed for him. And it's that, against that, that he asks and he begs God the Father that he wouldn't have to face it. Abba, Daddy, God, Father, please, if there's any other way, if there's an out, if there's any possibility of cancelling this plan, please then spare me from it. He's so distressed, deeply troubled, his soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is so torn up about this coming hour that he would go and pray it three times. Now, that number three is also not an accident. Remember the three references we saw of the hour, and there's actually three times that Jesus will go off and pray about this. And the reason why three is important is because the three is to remind us that though Jesus had every reason and every desire to cancel the plan, cancel the hour, he doesn't. You see, the number three contrasts something else that is about to happen three times. I wonder if some of you can guess what that is. What's about to happen three times? Well, Peter, Jesus' chief disciple, remember the night that night he had said earlier on, we didn't read it, but he said, Jesus, I will go with you even to death. I will follow you. I will stick by you. Well, what will, what will Peter do in a very short moment? Peter would go on to deny that he even knows Jesus. How many times? That's right, three times. Yeah. Peter had these plans that he would cancel at the drop of a hat. 
Not once, not twice, but three times. But Jesus, by contrast, even as he prayed three times for the hour to pass, he will not walk away. Because when it came to God's plan of salvation, he will not cancel. You see, the Bible tells us that even before the universe was created, the God who knows everything and knew everything in advance, he put into motion a plan. The God of the Bible is one God, but God in Trinity. And this God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within Himself has been in perfect and intimate and loving relationship from eternity to eternity. And out of the overflow of His love, He creates us, humanity. Also to share in that perfect loving relationship with Him, but also with each other, and also with the creation, the world that He made for us, to gift us, to care for. But instead of trusting him and loving him, we humanity, through our ancestors, Adam and Eve, well, we turned away from God. We disobeyed him. We rejected his plan. We took what was beautiful and we trashed it. Which meant that that intimate relationship between God and us, between us and each other, between us and the creation, that was spoiled and severed. But God had a plan, you see. God had a plan. And that plan involved The whole God, God and Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming together to enact a daring and costly salvation. You see, God the Son would come to earth. God the Son would be conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit and He would become a man. He would become fully man. And He would be filled with the Holy Spirit to always live in perfect obedience and unity with God the Father. He would become the model man, the man we were created to be, the perfect Adam that Adam failed to be. And he would, in three short years, show people just how good it is when God comes into a broken world and he comes face to face with broken people. We saw some of that last week. But Jesus' life wasn't the focus of the plan. I mean, he only lived some 33 years, very short life. No, the focus of God's plan was going to be Jesus' death. For in Jesus' death, At the appointed hour, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit would bring about that most daring and costly salvation. Because as Jesus dies on the cross, he would die in the place of guilty humanity. He would bear our sins in our place on the cross. He would drink and drain the cup of God's right and just anger against our sin. And he would do it instead of us. Now, That's what the cup means in verse 36. It's an Old Testament image, an Old Testament way of talking about God's anger and punishment. To drink the cup is to drink God's judgment. Now there on the cross, at the appointed hour, Jesus would do that in our place. He would bear all of his people's sins and die the death that we deserved. And he would experience a spiritual hell, hell so deep and so dark in order to spare us from it. Now that's why, as we saw last week, that's why the Son of God on the cross would cry out these terrifying words. Remember his words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus would be abandoned, forsaken, distanced, as we saw last week, punished so that we could be spared. 
But that's why the hour, you see, was so terrifying for him. That was what was coming. That's why he begged the father that it might pass from him because there is no greater terror and horror than the hell of being abandoned and rejected by God. Now, especially if you are the son of God and from eternity, you've always been in perfect, intimate relationship with God the Father. To have that suddenly torn apart, to be suddenly forsaken by God the Father as the son is nothing. That compares with that. There's an old uh, familiar illustration, sermon illustration, that's often told about the love of God the Father in sacrificing his only son. Now, you might have heard this story before. I'll tell it to you now. It's about a, a rail operator. And it's his job to mechanically lower the railway lines a few times a day to create a bridge over a particular river. Now, most of the time, this bridge is up to allow ships to pass on the river. Uh, but a few times a day, the rail has to be shifted mechanically to create that bridge so that the trains could cross over it. Now, on one of those days with the train coming from a distance, the rail operator does what he usually does. Right? He sees the train coming. He knows it's coming. So he shifts the rail to form a bridge over the river. Only this time, something goes wrong. You see, the locking mechanism fails. Without it locked in, the train would cross, but it would derail as it crossed the bridge. Now, there is a backup mechanism. The backup is that he, it, he would have to go onto one side of the bridge to, to hold this big stick, which locks the mechanism, holds it manually locked. And he has to hold it in place until the train passes. But if he holds it in place, it'll work. So as quickly as he can, he races over to that side and he, and he holds that lock in place and he holds it there waiting for the train to cross. And it's coming. It's coming real quick. Just then, he hears a child's voice. Daddy, daddy. It's his toddler son. He looks again and to his horror, he sees his son running across on the rail bridge. Get out. Get out of the way. Run. But his son is too young. He's too young to understand. He thinks it's a game. He stays on the bridge. Now, you can imagine every inch in this father's body, wants to run and grab his son, pull him to safety before the train comes. But there's no time because if he lets go of this mechanism, he can save his son, but the train with hundreds of passengers would derail and they would die. So he does the only thing that he can do. He holds on to the lock. And as the train thunders past the rail bridge, he looks away in agony and the passengers don't even notice the lifeless body of the little boy that the train runs over. The son who was sacrificed by his father in order to save them. And that goes the story, is an illustration of how God the father loved us in sacrificing his only son to save us. I wonder, have you heard that story before or something like it? It's a really moving story, isn't it? But I hate to spoil it. Unfortunately, it's inaccurate in so many ways. And that's why I never use it. Because you see, the actual plan of God to save the world was not an accident. It wasn't a spur of the moment decision, you see. It was planned even before the universe was created. And this plan of God's was not between a knowing father and an unknowing toddler son. No, it was in full cooperation and full agreement between God the Father and God the Son. This was a sacrifice of agreement where the whole Godhead 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit work together to enact a plan of salvation. The plan was that the Father would sacrifice His Son, but that the Son would willingly sacrifice Himself, and the Holy Spirit would empower the Son and enable Him to go all the way and do that. And so that's why as anguished and distressed as Jesus the Son of God was, and though He prayed that the hour might pass, and though He begged that the cup might be taken away from Him, even so, he nevertheless uttered those words of complete and utter obedience. Yeah, those words? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Right? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And the plan of God remained uncancelled. Uncancelled so that you and I can be forgiven, that you and I can be brought back into relationship with God for all eternity. Look, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what's stopping you from accepting what Jesus has done for you and offering you today? See, God's plan to save was to save you, to have you. He wants you to be in relationship with him, to have you as his own, to come into your life, to transform it, to give a meaning and purpose and joy. So will you put your trust in him even today? Will you ask him to forgive you? Will you turn to him and ask him to be in your life? Now, you can do that today. If this is something you want to do or you just want to find out more, well, then please connect with us in the link below. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, God wants you to know something as well. You see, because God refused to cancel his plans, you and I need to know that when it came when it comes to his ultimate plan for all of our lives, then nothing and no one can take that away either. You got that? Now you see that in the, these wonderful words from Romans chapter 8. Let me read it out for you. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, this doesn't mean that God will always do what's in our plans, all right? Even when we think that our plans line up with his plans. No, no, no. When it comes to our own scripts for our own lives, right, no matter how much we think it lines up with God's plan or his will, we have to know that those can be canceled, right? There will be many times in our lives when our plans will be canceled, when our scripts will be thrown out when our hopes and dreams will be dashed. God is not guaranteeing to always uphold our plans. What he does guarantee, though, is that no matter what happens to our plans, his plans, which are for our greatest joy and his greatest glory, they will come to pass. That nothing will cancel his plans for us. 
Because you see, if Jesus refused to walk away from those plans in the Garden of Gethsemane, then you and I can know that nothing can ever cancel what God wants to do through those plans in our own lives. Yeah? Yeah. I know that's hard when we see our hopes and dreams dashed. See, when our plans, no matter how good or even godly they seem to us, when our plans go up in smoke, it's natural for us to then ask, why God? I I thought this was your plan for me. Now what? I I thought I'd be married by now. I thought I'd have kids by now. I thought my kids would be all perfect and and love Jesus. I thought I'd have a good and stable job so that I can do what I'm supposed to do, support my family, give to my church. So God, why the singleness? Why the cancer? Why the unemployment? In those times, right, times when our plans seem like they've hit a dead end and we are grieving or confused, might I suggest that that's a good time to examine our hearts? You see, if, if when my plans are dashed, if I'm so devastated that I want to give up on life, I want to give up my faith, I want to give up trusting and obeying God, then maybe it's a sign that I've made an idol of my plans. You know what I mean? See, no matter how good or godly those plans might have been, I have made those plans irreplaceable. I have served them and found my identity in them and put my hope in them. See, our plans and our scripts for our lives can so easily become God substitutes, can't they? But like every idol, what they do is rob us of our greatest joy and God's greatest glory. And so maybe, maybe next time our plans are cancelled, maybe we'd see that as God's mercy to us. Because he may be revealing idols in a painful way. Because God loves us too much for those idols to keep hold of our hearts. So he's cancelled our plans or put them on hold because he wants above all else for you and me to live and find our greatest joys in his plans for us. The plan that Jesus secured with his obedience that night at Gethsemane. The plan that will see us united with him forever in the new creation. Let's pray. Father God, I pray especially for those here who might be grieving and sorrowful or anxious about plans that have changed in their lives. Would they know that even cancelled plans are not an obstacle to your plans being worked out? In fact, it may be a way that you reveal our attachment to idols, our idolatrous dreams and hopes and plans, no matter how good they are. May you reveal that and may you do the hard work of helping us let, letting those things go. So that when we're synced up with your plans, which will never be cancelled, that we might find the greatest joy and bring you the greatest glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it would be great for you and your groups or in your families to discuss this a couple of questions what comfort can you take from God's uncancelled plan to save us right what comfort and secondly what plans in your life might God be revealing as idols all right thanks for joining us i'll see you again next week bye